Did you know that a bunch of people listen to the show, but then drop off once we start doing the credits? They must be new because the credits are often one of the best parts of the show, I think. Have we not been marveled enough over the last 15 <laughs> years or so to know that you have to stay to the end? There might be some important nuggets after the end of the show. I don't know about people your age, but people my age were trained on that by Ferris Bueller. So you're still here. If nothing else, that should have it's over trickled its way down through the rest of the media consuming public by now. Go home. It is. ATN has been a longtime supporter of the stinger. I think that's the technical term for that. Go. I think the post credits part, as you said, is one of the best parts of the podcast. Also, because I take the four or five minutes of stuff that we say after the credits and condense it down to like the funniest 45 seconds. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Your weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. It's the podcast for December 5th of 2022. Podcast number 323, season 16, episode 23. And I'm Pat Coleman, the guy who runs D3Football.com, who is looking for an itinerary that gets him to Chicago on Saturday morning and back on Saturday night. And I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, we made it. 14 weeks down, two weeks to go. We have made it to the Fantastic Four. Can I say that? Are we allowed to say, are we allowed to use Fantastic Four? He knows answers to questions we don't even know to ask him. I don't think we're allowed to say Final Four, so let's go with Fantastic Four. I like that. Yeah, two weeks to go. We will be in Annapolis, Maryland. I mean, you and I will be there. You'll be there like nine days from now. I'll be there 10 days from now. It's pretty crazy. And this podcast is sponsored by Stevenson University, the host of Stag Bowl 49. We talked earlier in the season with Ed Hoddle. He's the head football coach at Stevenson. He raves about Annapolis and what you are going to experience as a fan when you go to the Stag Bowl. It's a great small town in a major metropolitan area. There's a ton of history to see, tons of restaurants, tons of bars, tons of things to do. It's a beautiful place to be around the holidays. You know, there's just a, a, a small town historic feel to it, but again, you're in an easily accessible major metropolitan area. I think the feel of it will be very, very different, you know, from that perspective. Yeah, Pat, really looking forward to going to Annapolis. It's been a few years uh, since I've been there myself. A couple of places that I've visited previously in Annapolis, I'm looking forward to getting a chance to go back to. I think it's going to be a fun town for the Stag Bowl. I think the venue is going to be great. And yeah, just in eight or nine days, we will be descending into Annapolis, getting ready for Stag Bowl 49. I'm very excited to get out there and see which two of these final four teams will be playing for the national championship. So book your flights to BWI, to Reagan National, drive up or down I-95, get your Amtrak to Baltimore. For more information on Stag Bowl 49, go to the official 2022 Stag Bowl website at bit.ly slash stag49. Yeah, so we're down to the four teams that will have the opportunity to play there. Three teams who have done this before, and Wartburg. Wartburg won its way through to the national semifinals with a win against Aurora, a big win going away against Aurora. We will talk about all four of those games. We'll get you ready for the national semifinals, but first. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And for my game ball, I'm just going to go back all the way back to podcast 322. And my game ball is going back to Parker Rochford. Another two interceptions. This guy, the outside linebacker slash defensive back for Wartburg, including one return for a touchdown. His second TD in as many weeks. And here is how it sounded. It's a five, it's a five receiver set. 
There's lots of quick throws. Picked Intercepted. Off. And running back. Parker Rochford. To the end zone. Parker Rochford. And he's got a house call. What a turn of events for the Knights. And Parker Rochford, he's had plenty of interceptions this year. He had one in the St. John's game last week. He's known for that defensive side of and knowing that if he's in the area, he's most likely going to get in the way of that ball. Parker Rochford jumped the route there and saw open grass. These are like the NFTs of game balls, really. These uh, imaginary game balls that we send to these players. Parker Rochford, in a day in which some defense was needed, especially after the first 15 minutes or so of that game, Parker Rochford came up with a big play to put his team up by two scores, and he gets my game ball. Rochford is going to need a whole new filing cabinet for all the game balls you're giving him, Pat. My game ball is going to go to Mary Harden Baylor wide receiver K.J. Miller. K.J. Miller led all receivers in this game with six receptions for 144 yards, but it was his 65-yard catch-and-run touchdown in the fourth quarter that may well have saved UMHB's season. Bethel had just scored less than one minute into the final quarter to take a 28-17 lead. With the way that Bethel had controlled the ball and the clock throughout the game, you had to assume right there that UMHB's possessions would be limited and a quick score was almost necessary. Miller provided that score on the first play of the ensuing drive with that 65-yard touchdown. He added a key 15-yard rush on Mary Harden Baylor's next possession to set up the go-ahead score as well. And if UMHB's season was in a bit of cardiac arrest there in the fourth quarter, K.J. Miller provided the jolt Clear. to keep it alive. And for his fourth quarter heroics, K.J. Miller gets my game ball. Right, it seems like those are definitely the two guys who should get game balls out of Saturday. Here's K.J. Miller talking about that touchdown catch and run. Every time I catch the ball, that, that's my um, mentality. I try to go score, so. As can you walk us through what you saw, just kind of how it all unfolded for you on that play? Um, as soon as I caught the ball, I seen, you know, a lot of fields, so I knew I had an opportunity to go score, so um, just that's just what happened. K.J. Miller definitely not giving away any secrets there. Makes it sound so simple. Did not seem all that simple, although – to be honest with you, Greg, watching that play develop, it may have actually been that simple. Sometimes it is with KJ. He gets the ball in some traffic, and then all of a sudden he's the traffic is behind him, and he's running to the paint there at Crusader Stadium. So I wouldn't know what that feeling is like to just catch the ball and go score. Do not know how that works. I feel like I would be more of like a, a three yards in a cloud of dust kind of guy, just get in there get what I can and and go on to the next play. But KJ Miller, we've known about his speed and his ability for a number of years now and broke it out at exactly the right time for UMHB. But you're like 6'1", 6'2", right? I think I'd have to have peg you as a safety or something like that. Probably a safety would be, would be where I would be at. I'm not just typecasting you just because you're on the podcast, you know. Definitely Division three size. That's probably where I would be like a roaming, uh, like a very, very poor man's Jefferson Fritz. <laughs> uh, poor indeed. I would be, it depends on the year. Some years I'm a 6-0-190 wide receiver right now. I'm a 6-0-235 defensive end or something like that. It's uh, it's beautiful. We should keep talking about this uh, game between Bethel and Mary Harden-Baylor though, right? Because some of the other games were close for a while or at least the score was close in the end, but this was the game that was the game of the day on Saturday. Yeah, Bethel and Mary Harden Baylor delivered the game of the day. And I think we kind of expected that when we saw the matchups for this weekend. It was a little unsettled early on. Three of the first four possessions in the game ended with turnovers. Both quarterbacks were intercepted once. Mary Harden Baylor fumbled once to set up Bethel with a short field. The Royals converted that into the game's first points. And then for 46 minutes, this game played kind of exactly the way Bethel had wanted. They they played with a lead. They took their time. They were calm and they were under control for the whole game through those first 46 minutes. And then early in the fourth quarter, Bethel finished a seven minute and 35 second drive with the touchdown. They took a 28 to 17 lead, as we just mentioned, and the game felt close to over at that point. But that's when KJ Miller breaks off his 65 yard touchdown run 
The defense gets a three and out. The crew go and score again immediately. This time they do it with a run-heavy five-play drive to take the lead. Then on the next possession, Titus Dunk jumps a quick slant intended for Aaron Ellingson. That's a turnover, and the crew really took control of the game at that point. In all, UMHB scores the last 24 points of the game all over the last 14 minutes and ends up with a double-digit win in a game that they were really chasing for the first three quarters. Here's how Mary Harden Baylor coach Larry Harmon described it after the game. I was uh, really proud of how our kids hung in there. Um, KJ made an electric play that got the fans really energized, which in turn energized us, and, and uh, we played a well of a fourth quarter. It's a good thing because we didn't play very well for three. So, uh, like I said, I, I told the guys before the game that uh, – you know, teams that are going to win a national championship, they just find ways to win. And I thought our kids did that today. I mean, this this thing for KJ to do what he did, and then and then it just steamrolled from there. Our, our guys found a way to get a win. They dug down deep, and I'm so proud of them. As you get deeper into the season, the crowds get smaller, even at places that draw fans, places such as Mary Harden Baylor, just because many multitudes of reasons. But the people who are there... If your team is getting beat, your team is down by two scores, you might get out of it a little bit, and that's certainly what it sounded like. I would say this, Greg, the mysterious third person on the Mary Harden-Baylor broadcast certainly made it sound like the fans were getting back into the game once things changed around. Yeah, the third mic there was audible for the, a good portion of the game and then went silent a little bit there in the third quarter as Bethel went out to a double-digit lead then. Um, really got back into the game there. Kind of an unintended barometer of how the crowd was feeling, maybe. But this is like Greek chorus, right? Or the everyman on that broadcast. A little bit, yeah. And that's a fan base that is used to seeing a lot of one-sided games. Um, they certainly don't see the crew lose very often. And you get down by 10 and you think, maybe this is where the, the run ends for this season. But then... With that that team and that offense, they can be very explosive. And we've talked about UMHB flipping a switch now and then, and they they kind of did there. And man, when they when they are really clicking, uh, they're they might they might be the the favorite if they can do that for four quarters. Did they flip a switch, or did KJ Miller just like run over to the wall and slam the switch up? Maybe a little bit of both. It was really something, and we've seen. UMHB do this kind of thing earlier this season. They had a they had an outburst against Harden Simmons. They turned that game, which was close, into a rout over the span of just a handful of minutes. They can score points in bunches when their offense gets going, their defense forces a turnover or two, and that momentum gets going. There may not be a team that rides a wave of momentum uh, quite like UMHB does. Of course, for every team that advances in thrilling fashion or not in thrilling fashion at this point in the season. There's also a team that goes home that packs it up. Now, sometimes in this previous podcast, when we're talking about weeks where we've eliminated 16 teams or even eliminated eight, we haven't had a lot of time to spend on talking about those teams. We'll talk a little bit about Bethel for just a moment. And head coach Steve Johnson recognizes that this is the end of a very special time for the Royals program. I'm not good at this because... I get, I get emotional at kickoffs. So, anyway. Really proud of our team. Um, coming to a place like this and uh, first class in every way and uh, um, we just want to be Men that uh, stay in the fight and uh, play for each other for 60 minutes and uh, and proud of these guys and all of them uh, that we did that today. It fell short. It's the way it is. Mayor Harden Baylor's uh, it's got so many great athletes and great tradition and. Um, Great ball game today. Something that I heard that yeah, was a great game to watch. Yeah. Oh boy. Anyway, um, privilege to be here. Proud of these guys. 
with Bethel getting eliminated on Saturday, one of the conversations was about how does a team rebuild, reload at this stage, right? We have seen teams and programs that are in that power category continue to reload. I think especially at quarterback, it seems important to have that once in a generation quarterback come through your doors every two or three years is really important in division three. And that's going to be the question for Bethel next year, because it is replacing Jaron Rosti is not really something that you can do, at least in the very basic terms, as I've described it. Yeah. And I think if you read Joe Sager's piece this week on Jaron Rosti, it's not just what he does on the football field that is special for, for Bethel, but it's his leadership and humility and confidence that, that the team really feeds off of. They, you know, that team really is an extension of Jaron Rosti's abilities and personality. And that will be the challenge next year is to replace that. And you don't, I don't know that you replace that exactly, but what comes next? What is next year's character going to be like? And will it have the same sort of calming, confident, presence. I tell you this, when I filed my Gallardi trophy ballot on Saturday, you got those 15 semifinalists. We are asked to rank just three players, top three players. Number one, number two, number three, Rosti was on my ballot. I won't say where, but I mean, that puts him in the top three, at least in my mind. Let's move on to the other half of this bracket where we're going to have a very familiar matchup coming out in the semifinals next weekend. That's right, Pat. Barry Hart and Baylor will travel to Naperville to take on North Central in a rematch of last year's championship game after the Cardinals rolled to a 48-7 win over Ithaca. Last week, Ethan Greenfield was limited to just 22 rushing yards in the first half against Carnegie Mellon. In the quarterfinal game against Ithaca, Greenfield had 43 yards on the opening drive, ending with the game's first touchdown. Luke Landon added a 26-yard on that opening drive as well, and the Cardinals quickly got back to what they do best, which is run the football. North Central outrushed Ithaca 383-17 to in this game. Greenfield had a fairly modest 115 yards on 19 carries, so you know they're keeping him fresh. Two touchdowns for Ethan Greenfield. Luke Landon led all rushers in the game with 144 yards. He had two rushing touchdowns to go along with his three passing touchdowns. All three of those were caught by D'Angelo Hardy. So the big stars were out for North Central this week in the quarterfinal. Here's what Luke Lanon had to say about Saturday. Um, I don't know if I'd say I've seen things better in these past moments. I just think as we get into the playoffs, a lot of the teams we're playing against are realizing that run games are strength. And they're over here worrying about T. Hill and Greeny all the time. That makes my uh, read options easy for me. Everybody's so focused on them. Normally I have a lot of green grass to work with. So, I mean, I just think that's what has really been happening. Like credit to them, like without them, teams would be able to key on me, but you got to pick one or the other sometimes. And they've been picking them. I mean, I would too, but, but yeah, it's just worked out like that. Greg, I got the quad box up on Saturday, right on my big screen. I'm sure like most of us who were able to follow all four games at once, which audio I have up or sometimes which two sets of audio I have up is basically entirely dependent on how interesting the game is, how close the game is. I basically never listened to the audio of the North Central Ithaca game. No, this was a game that I had on my no audio stream as well. Keeping an eye on it, obviously, I wanted to see how North Central would play this week compared to last week. I wanted to see if Ithaca could play and be competitive with North Central through some portion of the game. But um, early on, you could see the Cardinal offense rolling and that game got away from Ithaca pretty quickly. Really strong, strong offensive performance from North Central. But again, something that maybe we continue to sleep on a little bit is how good North Central's defense is. Some interesting stats for me about North Central's defense. North Central, they run 83 plays. Ithaca just had 42 plays of offense in this game. Ithaca just one of 10 on third down. Ithaca six first downs for the whole game. Ithaca only had the ball for seven minutes and 32, 17 minutes, excuse me, and 32 seconds. Not nearly enough time to win a game against North Central. You've got to keep Ethan Greenfield and Luke Landon off the field. None of those are my stat, by the way. Also, two years in a row, 
that North Central has had a huge game against the Liberty League champ in the national quarterfinal. Moving on to Pennsylvania, Doylestown, Pennsylvania, where it was Mount Union against Delaware Valley in a game that, you know, ended up as a final score of 22 to 6. It never seemed like it was quite as close as that, maybe just because of the way the Purple Raiders got the game started. Yeah, they started fast against Delaware Valley. They scored twice in their first three possessions, and then the game kind of settled into a bit of a defensive standoff. DeAndre Parker opened the score with a one-yard touchdown run on Mount Union's first possession. Jaden Manley caught a six-yard touchdown pass from Braxton Plunk early in the second quarter that pushed Mount Union's lead to 14-0. to And it felt like this is the kind of game that might escalate into a runaway for Mount Union. But right. the defense really stepped up from that point forward and gave Delaware Valley a chance. But offensively, Delaware Valley, they just couldn't get anything established against a really stingy and sometimes kind of salty Purple Raider defense. Uh, we knew that there were going to be some areas here where Delaware Valley has historically not been sound, let's say, penalties and special teams in particular. And those areas did come up and and get the Aggies a little bit. First quarter, penalty negated what would have been a really long pass play deep into Mount Union territory. Would have been a great scoring opportunity for the Aggies there. The Aggies also had a punt blocked in this game. They also had their lone extra point blocked. And those are the kinds of errors that you can overcome those in MAC play, but in the quarterfinals against Mountain Union, they get magnified and it's really difficult to overcome those kinds of errors. Delaware Valley, they've gotten closer for sure than the last time that they faced Mountain Union, but they just couldn't quite put together a complete game in this one. DeAndre Parker rushed for 122 yards and one score in this game. Most of those yards came in the first quarter. Manley had the touchdown catch, as we mentioned, and of course, Wayne Ruby Jr., led all receivers with 10 catches for 143 yards, and he did get that third Purple Raider touchdown. You can almost say that most of those yards came on one big 56-yard run in that first quarter on that second touchdown drive. Maybe not an ideal day for offense in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, but that didn't seem to bother Mountain Union quarterback Braxton Plunk. Here's what he said after the game. You know, it's, it's hard. It's a pain. Um, but, you know, I think we, we had a good practice Thursday in it. Um, practicing with a lot of uh, wet footballs and then um, some experience from some other games where I, I didn't play too well in wet conditions. So, um, you know, I think just handling that better. And, and I thought the offense handled it really good today. And also a big day for Rossi Moore on the defensive side of the ball. Nine total tackles, two sacks. One of those recorded a safety for the exclamation point on this game in the fourth quarter. And you have to think about this being a transition time, maybe an end of an era a little bit for Delaware Valley as well. If nothing else, you know, a number of those guys on defense graduate. Here is Blaine Netterman to talk about that a little more. I mean, I've been playing with, you know, Mike and Ann since my sophomore year of high school. So, you know, we're, you know, goes all the way back to high school. So it's a, it's a special feeling. You know, it sucks that it's over, you know, but, uh, you know, I got all my brothers on the team. You know, when I visited here, you know, I, I knew I wanted to run through a wall for this guy next to me. And, uh, you know, Coach Ray, Coach Brady, you know, you know, they're like, they're like second dads to us. You know, they, they have our backs throughout everything. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, I'm just at a loss for words. You know, I'm going to miss it. And I just love Delvin. I love all my teammates and coaches. Like I said, lots of stories like this around this time of year for sure. And just a, a moment of recognition for Michael Nobile. So his career ends with 50 and a half career sacks. That is the third most in recorded Division Three football history. Remember, the NCAA has been tracking sacks as an official statistic for the past 20 years. The big story out of Wartburg's win against Aurora was the play of Wartburg quarterback Niall McLaughlin, which is to say the fact that he played. According to Coach Chris Winter, that decision came down around an hour before kickoff. Well, I think probably about 10, 30, 11 o'clock this morning. <laughs> so, so we, we knew, uh, you know, on, on Thursday he took, you know, was out just throwing the ball around a little bit, didn't really take a lot of reps with our offense. Yesterday he was out throwing the ball around a little bit, just kind of moving a little bit more, been scooting around on a scooter most of the week. And then today, you know, we, we knew pregame we want to get him out there, get him moving around, see how it felt. You know, I think after we got through warm-ups, he was feeling pretty confident with how he was doing. He was able to move around well enough. Um, to be able to you know, protect himself. We certainly want to put him in any situations where we would risk furthering any injury. And uh, yeah, yeah, he was, he was confident. He had a lot of confidence going. And you know, one thing I want to, want to say too, Carter Markham 
prepared himself in a, in a great way this week, too. I think all the team believed in Carter as well. If, if Nile hadn't been ready, you saw at the end there some of the stuff we had ready to go for Carter, and that guy can play, too. So, you know, we're in good hands, the quarterback spot. Really proud of Nile for stepping up. But, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited about how that group looks right now and excited to see what they can do next week. Just watching him, Greg, like, you know, maybe away from the ball or after he releases a pass, maybe a little bit of limping, stuff like that. But, yeah, definitely seemed pretty mobile and certainly enough passing to allow Hunter Clawson to be all Hunter Clawson-y. Not the best statistical day maybe for Niall McLaughlin, but, um, you know, we saw last week in the quarter that he didn't play Wartburg's offense not looking quite so polished. Niall McLaughlin, obviously not 100% out there. The offense did seem steady, rolling up, you know, well over 40 points. In this game, Aurora jumped out to a 10-0 lead, and it started to look like the Spartans. They were off and rolling again. But then Warburg's defense really dug in, and the Spartans' offense stalled out while the Knights' offense got rolling. Behind Hunter Clausen, as you said, another monster game for him. These are not my stats, but the stats that really stand out for me in this one are 23 and 21. Those are the longest completions of the game for Aurora. The Spartans, they've been a big play offense throughout the postseason, and Warburg just didn't allow that to happen. So the Spartans collected nine first downs in the first quarter, just eight first downs for the rest of the game. So Warburg really adjusted well after that quick start. I know that most of the current Division Three football players aren't going to understand the reference that I'm about to make, but I have to think that getting Niall McLaughlin in the lineup has to have some of this Willis-Reed effect. Maybe I have to explain to people what the Willis-Reed thing is about. So around the nation, listeners, Willis-Reed was a basketball player for the New York Knickerbockers in the 70s, and in a famous, I believe it was a playoff game, Willis-Reed left the court seemingly injured not to return and the Knicks went down for a little bit and then Willis Reed heroically comes out of the tunnel in Madison Square Garden the place goes crazy the Knicks team gets energized by Willis Reed's reemergence and they come back and win the game yeah that is game 7 of the 1970 NBA Finals. I think that was broadcast on tape delay on your local UHF stations. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. My stat of the week is all the season highs or season lows from the North Central Ithaca game. Season low, 17 yards of rushing for the Bombers. Season low, 119 yards of passing. You can probably guess where that 136 total yards ranks on the season for the Bombers as well. North Central's 383 yards rushing was the most the Bombers have given up all season. And the four rushing touchdowns Ithaca allowed were compared to just six touchdowns on the ground against Ithaca in the previous 12 games of the season. Kind of a tough week all around for the Bombers, but I guess, if nothing else, that's a good measuring stick for future years, right? I think so. The Ithaca broke a lot of, like, broke a lot, got through a lot of hurdles that have been stopping them in the last couple of years this year. So maybe they can reset the bar a little bit higher and, and chase down that North Central standard a little bit and get back to restoring Ithaca glory from the 80s and 90s. Ithaca is going to do that or attempt to do that in the future on a field at Butterfield Stadium where the grass is coming out, the turf is going in, and the lights are going up. I saw so, so many negative comments from Ithaca alumni, including people who I remembered suiting up for the Bombers over the course of the past 20 years who did not want to see the grass go. I am not one to talk about the Ithaca tradition. That is not my place. What I know is just when you run an athletic department, you need to have fields that you can easily maintain and use for multiple things, right? It is actually cheaper to maintain a turf field over the course of its 8 to 12 year life. Uh, You could do more things on it. You can rent that thing out now that it's got lights coming as well. Intramurals can play there. You get more students involved and, you know, you get more community involvement. I understand there is a severe tradition with the grass at Butterfield Stadium. I think it's going to be okay is what I'm saying. I'd like to get 
the feedback from Glenn Caruso on this one. Ithaca man, Glenn Caruso. It's a little late here on the Central Coast. <laughs> Funny you should mention that, Greg. I have a response from Glenn Caruso right here. Ask and you shall receive. Glenn Caruso says, and he says, and that's on the record. Turf on Coach Butterfield's house? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark. Heartbreaking, and that's on the record. There you have it. Controversy. Is that how that's pronounced? If you're watching, <laughs> if you're watching English Premier League soccer, you'll you'll hear about replay controversies all the time. I really don't spend a lot of time watching English Premier League football. That's not my style of football. I don't even watch North American professional football, frankly, at this point. Pat, my stat of the week is three, as in three of the last four teams remaining are ranked one, two, and three in our top 25. Regardless of who played where and in what venue, our top 25 voters are really good at finding the favorites. Only North Central has advanced this far without having to leave home. And I'm actually not sure if that's common, that three of the four semifinalists have had to play and win away from home to get there. The one team that breaks the perfect top four semifinal is Wartburg, who happened to defeat the fourth ranked team on their way to the semifinals. All right, so we got national semifinals coming up. As a reminder, these game times were set basically by ESPN or by you know ESPN in conjunction with the Division Three football committee. We see staggered times, again, allowing people to view both games in their entirety or essentially in their entirety. As for those of you who can't multitask and watch two to four to eight to 16 games at the same time, this is the game where a replay review is back in, coaches' challenges are in. You know, you got three games out of 1,200 all season that get reviewed in this manner. I think it's just important to remind people that, you know, the ESPN complement in Alliance or in Naperville is going to be like six or seven cameras. It's not like we've got a Super Bowl or even a Stag Bowl's amount of cameras. Sometimes, even though you've got DV Sport or one of the major packages for this sort of thing available, that doesn't mean that you've got a lot of angles to choose from. You don't. And I think we've seen over the last handful of years where this has been in play, I think uh, our division three officials have done a pretty good job actually with replay when to use it, when to see what it's telling you and, and go by it. So for a group of officials that don't use replay all year long, the crews that get semifinal games historically by, by my recollection tend to do a pretty good job with it. Wartburg versus Mount union though. Let's talk about this game a little bit more closely, I guess. Warburg's defense obviously has played really well. They've gone up against some really prolific offenses through the course of this playoffs. Now you're going to Alliance, Ohio. Now you're going to see a team that's you know played pretty well offensively, kind of traditionally, over the course of a long time. Who's the guy who covers Wayne Ruby? Who's the guy who covers everybody else? What people had long said and this is going back, you know, practically 25 years, is the way to beat Mountain Union is to get pressure on the quarterback with just your front four. If you can do that with just your front four, then you have the ability to have enough guys in coverage that uh, the traditionally really good Mountain Union quarterback is not able to just, you know, pick things apart. I feel like, just looking at things, Warburg has some horses up front. Question is always kind of those individual matchups and maybe those schemes against a pretty good Mountain Union offensive line. Yeah. Can they get pressure on Braxton Plunk, who does run better than maybe you think he does? He can get out of the pocket and hurt you that way as well. Wartburg, for me, man, they cover so well. They cover super, super well. Now, I don't know that they've had to cover Wayne Ruby Jr. or somebody of his caliber quite yet, but... They do cover really well. And the way that they were able to sort of corral the Aurora offense uh, was pretty impressive. That's something that Whitewater couldn't do in the first round. So really impressive stuff from the Wartburg defense. I think they're going to bring it. For Wartburg, it's the first time in the semifinal. And I think it's going to be their first time going to play at Mount Union. There's, there's something to that. And I think if you can get through that, 
and not be shocked by where you're at and who you're playing. Um, I think Wartburg has the players defensively to make this a game. Mount Union's defense is pretty good too, right? right. Um, so now you're going to need to get you're going to need to you're going to need more than seventy percent of Niall McLaughlin, Hunter Clausen. I don't know that two hundred yards is on the table for him this week either. But I don't know that Wartburg needs 30 or 40 points to win this game. We've seen Mount Union held to modest point totals a couple of times this season. So it can be done with really good defenses. And I think, you know, this is going to be a defensive battle. I think lower scoring than a lot of people think. And it should be a really good game in Alliance. I wonder if we can use the Delaware Valley defense as kind of a proxy for the Warburg defense just a little bit, right? Yusuf Aladinov and Michael Nobile, Nick Chapman, they combined for six tackles for loss on Saturday. Nobile and Aladinov tied or combined for two sacks. I mean, two sacks doesn't sound like a lot, but that's not generally the type of pressure that Mountain Union has to face on a week-in, week-out basis. No, it isn't. And if you can get pressure on Braxton Plunk, the secondary of Wartburg, they've set a school record for interceptions. Every week they're intercepting one, two, three passes, it seems. So uh, pressure on Plunk, maybe he gets a little loose, throwing just throwing a, a jump ball up to somebody. Wartburg is pretty, has been pretty adept at, at winning those and picking balls off. So you may not have to sack Braxton Plunk in this game, but if you can get him under some pressure and speed him up a little bit, uh, you might be able to force some turnovers that way. Heidelberg, if we remember all the way back to early October, registered five sacks on Mountain Union, but nobody else with more than the two that Delaware Valley got on Saturday. That's why I think that at the very least, there's two things at play here, right? Warburg looks at that film, sees what it can pick up, what it can learn from, but then also those Mountain Union offensive line guys, the offense in general, the play callers, all that sort of thing, have an opportunity to learn from what happened this week, which 20 points by the Mountain Union offense, as you said, not super great, not what uh, they would expect to do against a quote-unquote East Region team in the National Quarterfinals, right? I think they have uh, plenty of opportunity to go back and retool things over the course of the week as well. Moving on to the other semifinal, just your everyday rematch of the 2021 Stag Bowl. I saw a couple of people, maybe I just saw one, person complaining on Twitter about how there's a rematch of this game in the national semifinals. I think the reason why this game is a rematch and all of those Mountain Union Whitewater games weren't was because, you know, Mary Harden Baylor lost a game in the regular season and kind of then abdicated the privilege of not having to face last year's Stag Bowl opponent until the actual Stag Bowl. I think that's where that comes from first off. Yeah, I think if both of those teams had run the table and been 10-0 undefeated, you might have seen them on opposite sides of the bracket. It's interesting to go back and think about how different maybe the bracket or the orientation of the of the pods may have been if Mary Harden Baylor closes out that closes out that game at Perkins Stadium, right? They're probably unanimous number one in our poll. They're probably the top-ranked team in the bracket, I would think. They probably don't have to travel to Trinity in the second round. A lot of things could have been different, but no matter how you slice it, here we are with North Central and Mary Harden Baylor squaring up again this year in the semifinal. Team's pretty familiar with each other, right? Mary Harden Baylor this past week facing Jaron Rossi as quarterback. Luke Lanin is not that guy. Luke Lanin is a much different quarterback, much more willing to pull down the ball and run and has way more speed than Jaron Rossi. He's not as big as Rossi, like Rossi, 6'3", 230, a load to bring down if he's going full speed. Lanin's a different guy, right? Lanin's an outfielder. Lanin likes to run. He's maybe not as good a passer as Rossi. He at least has a better running game to call on, though, in Ethan Greenfield. He has a top-notch wide receiver in D'Angelo Hardy. I think it's every bit as good as Joey Kidder. In fact, Joey Kidder would probably like to be as good as D'Angelo Hardy if we come to think about it, just because Hardy has been in college a couple years longer than Joey Kidder has. We're talking about Joey Kidder, assuming that Bethel comes up with a quarterback that uh, can make use of him. We'll be talking about Joey Kidder quite a bit over the course of the next couple of years. 
So there's some familiarity there. Neither of these teams is going to get intimidated by this. You know, we talked quite a bit early in the season about how those young linebackers for Mary Harden Baylor struggled in some of the big moments, struggled at Whitewater. Seems like a lot of that has, you know, gone past them, right? Seems like a lot of that has been outgrown. Let's put it that way. But you got to contain this lane and guy, and you got to try to stop Greenfield and, you know, maybe Terrence Hill while you're at it and all of those weapons that that North Central offense has. Yeah, Kyle King in UMHB's post game had a comment about, you know, this next this coming up week and how North Central's probably got some feelings about the way that the Stag Bowl went for them last year. And so when you have a series like this where you're playing in consecutive years, I won't necessarily say yet that North Central and UMHB are rivals per se, but they certainly played a high stakes game last year did not go very well for North Central and they probably have some some unfinished business if I can play that cliche card with UMHB in this in the semifinals when you have two really good teams two pretty even teams I think the pendulum about who has the advantage might swing back and forth depending on who lost most recently I think we probably have like maybe two cliche cards to play per podcast what do you think it sounds good that sounds fair and if you're North Central, you really don't like remembering the 2021 Stag Bowl after about the first 15 seconds of the game. No, and that was that was UMHB playing a full game the way that they played the last 14 minutes of their quarterfinal game against Bethel. Pretty scary stuff when the crew are clicking on all cylinders with the passing game going, the offensive line blowing things up and making holes for a running game that hasn't been maybe as powerful as we're used to seeing from the crew they certainly were in that first in that fourth quarter I think that's going to be a key for the crew as well in this game is to establish some run and keep Lennon and Greenfield and Hardy on the sideline for more than more than just 17 minutes of the game right try to establish the run anyway right I'm kind of thinking back you know mentally through my brain who are the best running backs that North Central has faced this season. Geo Weeks. Geo Weeks has to be at the top of the list. And then it's kind of a long way down to Trey Vesalitis. Anyway, you know, you're North Central. A lot of the guys are pretty familiar, right? Afonso Thomas still exists. Uh, Brandon Jordan still exists. KJ Miller uh, exists, right? These guys are who they were last year, as far as we can tell on offense, right? They're not surprising anybody now. No, offensively, it's the same cast of characters, Kyle King and KJ Miller and Brandon Jordan and Afonso Thomas and Cormier. All of these guys doing their thing. Anthony Avila is a reliable kicker for them as well. Somebody we've known for quite some time. A lot of the stars for North Central's offense, also familiar from last year. That's a unit that is really rolling, had a great game against Ithaca. It could be the experience of the defenses that proved to be crucial in this semifinal. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. Now is the time of the podcast where we go just to make sure that Twitter still exists. Looks like it does. And our mailbag question this week comes from Matt Zepp at MJ Zepp. That's Zepp with two P's asking, which losing team from Saturday will be rated highest in the final top 25? Great question. I know it's uh, one that we will tackle on podcast number 326. It's also one of Keith McMillan's favorite questions every year. So kind of feel like we should, uh, you know, go the phone a friend and get Keith's take on this. You know, the simple answer part of it is it kind of depends on who wins, right? And what games are close down the stretch, right? If Mary Harden Baylor goes on to win the thing, Bethel looks pretty good. Trinity looks pretty good. They were a team that lost on Saturday, at least not this Saturday. I think Bethel, though, if we're talking about the four teams that lost here in the quarterfinals, they're the ones that acquitted themselves the best. They also have good wins before this in the tournament if wins before this in the regular season, I'd have to think that uh, right now Bethel would be the one that is the answer at this moment. 
Yeah, as I'm thinking about it, we're just looking at the teams that lost this weekend. I think the answer is Bethel, even though they are gonna they're gonna finish with three losses on the season. Delval just one loss, Ithaca just one loss. But for me, it's Bethel having wins against St. John's and Linfield and Wheaton that I think elevate them up quite a bit. And I think we've seen how good Bethel is when Jaron Rosti is healthy. And one of those losses definitely came when he was not healthy. Another loss, he wasn't super, he wasn't super great health-wise against St. John's in the in the Mayak championship game, but he played, so that one counts. But you know, the 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 Platteville loss, you almost scrubbed that out because there was no Jaron Rosti. And it's there we, there's a sufficient sample size here to suggest that um that's not representative of who Bethel is as a team in 2022. Thanks for your questions. If you have questions for the podcast, look for when we throw that call out on Saturday or Sunday, and we will answer the most interesting one here on this podcast. Just a reminder coming up this week, you will get the D3football.com all region team. Our voters are wrapping that up. Our voters actually have wrapped up voting by the time you hear this, and I will be spending the majority of my Monday, Tuesday evenings compiling all of those votes into six releases. These are the teams that feed into our All-America team. We'll announce that All-America team on the pregame show for Stag Bowl 49 coming up on Friday, December 16th from Annapolis, Maryland. Just a little bit kind of behind that process. We've got about a 1,000 nominees Anybody who is named All-Region is eligible to be named All-American. In reality, when you're talking about six first-team players and in a lot of cases just four spots nationally, you're really talking about first-team All-Region players who have the really best chance to be selected as All-American. And then, you know, do the math. We are going to have six first-team quarterbacks. Not all of them can be All-American Seems like an appropriate place to remind everybody that Division Three is the largest division of NCAA football, and our All-American teams at D3Football.com have the same number of teams, four teams, the correct number of positions per team. We don't have 15 first-team quarterbacks. Right. And so, you know, you've got many more thousands of players than you have in Division One or Division Two. And making the All-American team is that much more difficult. As you can keep an eye out for that, you're probably talking about Tuesday is when that's likely to happen, possibly not even until Wednesday morning. And then also on Wednesday, Frank Rossi and I will be on your screens and we will be telling you who the four finalists are for the Gallardi Trophy. So the fan vote concluded on Saturday. The other 40 members of the National Selection Committee had to have their votes in by Saturday. I definitely waited until the end of Saturday because I wanted to see those semifinals who are playing on Saturday get one more game against top flight competition. But we know that, you know, not every person who has a ballot waits that long. Nonetheless, Frank and I will have the reveal show for you on Wednesday on D3Football.com. So keep an eye out for that. That's a lot of fun. If you are a sports information director at a school and we have reached out to you for video of your semifinalists, just know that as of the moment we record this, we've only received nine of the 15. We want to make sure that your guy has highlights on our show. Let's put it that way. That's our bookkeeping for the week, but uh, we got some bookkeeping to do as we uh, do our spot check for the week as well. Oh, the quarterfinal round has nearly eliminated any separation that our quick hits panel had in the playoff win aggregates this week, Keith, Frank, Logan, and Riley, they all had perfect four for four weeks. Pat, you were the lone pick for Aurora this week, which we know did not come through for you. Ryan tips and myself, we each picked Bethel to go on the road and win this week in Belton. We were wrong about that. The totals Pat now stand Ryan, Pat, Logan, and Riley all tied for first place with 20 correct picks through the first three rounds. Keith, Frank, and myself all just one game behind with 19 correct picks. It is anybody's game, Pat. 
I could have played it safe and I would still be in the lead, right? I don't know that you played it safe. That, there was a, that's a sound pick. It's a sound pick if Niall McLaughlin doesn't play, right? Sounder. Sounder pick. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 323, released on December 5th of 2022. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out. We have coverage this week. I've talked about some of those things. We'll have playoff features from every school that will talk to us as we get this uh, week of national semifinals to you as well. You can support production of this podcast and you can support the d3sports.com family of websites by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. But even if you can't afford to support us in a financial way, you can help us out by telling a friend, telling a classmate, telling a fellow alum about the show. It would probably even be helpful if you listen all the way through the show on Spotify, past the credits, and to the post credit scene. I'm sure that would help us in some algorithm somewhere. You can rate and review us on those various uh, places where people rate and review and listen to podcasts as well. You can reach us to talk more about Division 3 football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division 3 sports. Did you know that you could join that conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com? And you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music, that, this, this theme music, is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks in this podcast as well. You can find those at djmentos.com as well as, again, on Spotify. Thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on d3football.com, Keith McMillan, and thank you to my co-host, Greg Thomas for whom I am up at midnight on Saturday night recording this. We only assume that the games are in Alliance in Naperville. We've recorded several other endings to this podcast just in case some unexpected circumstances arise. Release the director's cut with all of the alternate endings. I think the director's cut to this podcast is pretty darn long. There's enough stuff. If I had done a good job of keeping the proverbial cutting room floor filed, there's enough stuff for a whole other podcast. Oh, at least. I'm pretty sure that in one of these podcasts or one of these, in one of these recording sessions, I talked about the fact that I play, I'm going to be, you know, 500 miles by the proclaimers. Every time I walk into a bar in a D3 town that has that touch tunes uh, jukebox system. But I'm pretty sure that got cut for time on a previous podcast, and I don't know, it might get cut out of this too. Where it's not going to get cut is at the bar in Annapolis in about 10 days. <laughs> I say, or if you're in a D3 town and you hear that song come out of the jukebox at your local watering hole, look around. I could be there somewhere. But you know I'm going to be. I'm going to be the one who plays the Proclaimers on the jukebox. Thank you, Thank you so much, everybody.